Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and today we're speaking to Lieutenant Austin Doyle and Sergeant Valerie Cole about the European Union training mission to Mali and their experiences training the Malian Armed Forces. So welcome on to the show guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks sir, how are you? Um, so First of all, your own kind of broad backgrounds. Um, I, we might start with you, Ozzy. Uh, so, how long have you been in Defence Forces? Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Nice in Calair there. Uh, I joined, uh, or started my cadetship in September 16, uh, commissioned 18 into, um, or sorry, commissioned January 18 into the NCO training wing. Uh, so, still in the NCO training wing uh, at the moment. Okay, um, right. So, that's my, that's my full extent of my military <laughs> yeah, career. Today. Yeah, you're up into the organisation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Mali was your first overseas experience? First trip, yeah. So I suppose something I didn't think I'd be doing 10 years ago, going to, to Africa with the Defence Forces. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. For yeah. luck of the draw, I got a good one to start with. Yeah, yeah no, in fairness, yeah. And what, what about yourself, Valerie? Uh, so I'm originally from Leitrim, sir. I joined the Defence Forces in 2004. Um, I'm currently 16 years in. Um, and I spent most of my career in training units. So I spent seven years in the BTC in Dublin. And then I spent another two years in the NCO training wing, where LT Doyle is currently now. Um, three overseas tours of one to Chad, 2009. I was um, recently in Undoff, 2017. And my most recent one then was Mali there um, last year. Yeah, yeah. So this was, but it wasn't your first African experience, obviously. No, sir, no. Second, yeah. Before, yeah. Fantastic, 100%. And as you said, you're both in the NCO training wing now at the moment. Well, so. currently I'm in the G7, uh, in the HQ oh, in the okay. DFC. Yeah. Right, so the, tra- the training aspect. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, again, so for, your, for yourself, Ozzy, must have been kind of a real sort of, I don't know what to expect, but you obviously had African experience before. Already, like, so how, how was it kind of set up for, for Mali? Like? Uh, well, be, so as we first, we kind of had a form-up uh, in uh, UNSI. Yeah. Uh, we had you a training school. Uh, yeah, in the car there. Uh, I had a classmate on the trip with me as well, so that was good. It was the first trip for both of us. Yeah. Uh, and we get on quite well. So And there's only 20 of us uh, between the, the HQ elements and the training. So it was a small group, uh, three excellent training sergeants as well, but a lot of experience. So it was great to have that around as well. And uh, yeah, everyone on the trip had two minimum trips, I suppose. So for myself and Elty Harrison, we had lots of uh, experience. Lots of support, yeah. Lots of, uh, yeah, just yeah. kind of telling us what it was going to be like, as much as they knew from overseas as well. A so. lot of experience in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, so we had four weeks there, uh, and then we had about two weeks leave before going, uh, yeah. and then we went over September... March. March. We Sorry, back yeah. in September 19. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we arrived... <laughs> so you were paying attention <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, we arrived the 17th of March in Kuligoro. So that's, that's right. the, the training area, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then we came back in September last year. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's all kind of relatively quite fresh in the mind. Yeah. Which is yeah. always good. So I suppose for, for people at home um, who might know what, say, the Malian situation is and what the, um, what the makeup of EOT and Mali is, can you give us kind of a breakdown on, like, what is the situation in Mali in recent years? Um, well, the, the mission's gone on since uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. So in 2012, I think it was March 2012, um, there was a, a coup that had over there. Um, the Malian government requested help from the uh, European Union. Um, so the mission started then, 2013, um, with HU being set up and then the training mission set up just to, essentially to help the Malian uh, Armed forces stabilize the country, train them yeah. to to, I suppose, be better equipped uh, with their TTPs, their tactics, techniques, and procedures. Big word, yeah. Um, and how to stabilize the country because a lot of conflicts kind of northern Mali. Yeah, um, I suppose from a geopolitical situation, you have a you have a fundamentalist Islamist militia 
which is operating the northern half of the country and causing instability. Right. Um, and I suppose it's very important to have a strong Malian state to try and stabilise the country and prevent atrocities occurring and, and instability and um, damaging the economy of Mali and that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, North Mali would be quite uh, poor, uh, be all like cultural kind of... Uh, the, the, main, the capital is Bamako down south. Mm-hmm. Timbuktu is about... It's, it is North Mali, but it, if you look at the map, it's kind of about halfway up the country, just a bit, bit over halfway, maybe along the river Niger. So that's kind of the most northern city. Yeah. But any, like most of the, the government is based down south, I suppose. So people in northern Mali would probably feel a bit detached, maybe, okay, from yeah. the, you know, the capital or you know, the, the kind of so be a long way away from, from where the capital is and probably that's where the support would come from. Yeah, of course. If you feel kind of quite isolated, maybe feel very different culturally mm. speaking. Um, so I suppose what I've written here is like why is it important to train the Malian army to a high level? And we've kind of answered that question: is that a stable Mali means it's a stable region, which is which is better for the lives of the people there and, and better for the kind of development of the country and, and, and improving economic conditions and what have you. Um, so we're going to go in in a little bit of detail as we go along about what is involved in training Malian soldiers and also the cultural differences. But um, as regards the mission itself, what kind of other nations are participating? So the, within the EU answer, there was 23 different countries from the EU and then there was five non-EU um, uh, countries as well. And out of all those countries, we were all divided into teams. So it wasn't just necessarily an Irish team or a Spanish team or a German team. We all mixed. So you'd have a platoon commander and then you'd have maybe five different nationalities. So it was a good way of kind of getting to know the other nationalities and see what way they work, but at the same time, we were all there to deliver the same instruction yeah. that was governed by, say, the, the syllabus set out and everybody, regardless of kind of what your background was, we, we deliver the same kind of training yeah. um, as such. So there was a good kind of um, skill set. So with, with the likes of courses and stuff, I know primarily it would have been infantry training, mm-hmm. but there was also um, a lot of different courses. And I suppose a good way of kind of looking at it was it kind of reminded me of a, a smaller DFTC in that um, there was your cadet school, artillery school, the infantry school, you had your headquarters, you had um, your CID training. So there was like a lot of different aspects to it. So it wasn't just just that. And while we were out there as well um, in 2019, the um, Malian Armed Forces got a new fleet of Caspiers, so it's an armoured personnel carriers that were given to them by the German army. Yeah, they came from South Africa. Yeah, so they're a South African vehicle that was refurbished and given to the uh, Malian Armed Forces. And that was one of the courses that we had instruct on. Um, I suppose it's drawn from our own experiences, um, given that we would have had car commander's courses done going to previous missions. So um, there was a lot of kind of, a lot of hours put into those courses and there was the tactical side of it. So like the Malians themselves probably, I suppose the background is some of them would never have driven a car, let alone an armoured car. Yeah. So like they had to be, you know, taught the very basics from right the, up to actually, up, like, yeah, yeah, so like going into the tactical op side of it um, and that kind of side. Yeah, so. That Caspier course would have been the, the first two weeks the drivers would have been separate. Yeah. Uh, getting taught how to drive these big armoured vehicles that they would never have seen before yeah. and we would have been working with the soldiers uh, doing counter ID stuff and okay well uh, I, I suppose we can kind of go into a bit of detail in like the different types of courses we were delivering before um, as we go along just the Irish contingent out there as well so what 
what is the makeup like? Is it broadly speaking, where are people based and what are their various roles? There's obviously the trainer aspect, which is what you were doing, but what other aspects are we doing out there? Uh, the full contingent is 20. Uh, so we have nine in the HQ element in Bamako. Mm -hmm. uh, myself and uh, Valerie were in the uh, in Kunakura on the training site, so there's 11 of us there. So two, two locations. With two locations, yeah. So and about an hour and, a, hour and 10 minutes? About an hour and a yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Obviously, for people at home, the Air Defence Force also has a number of personnel involved yeah. in the Manusma mission, which is another which is a UN mission operating in Mali. Um, but in this case, we're talking specifically about the European Union training mission. So uh, two locations, Bamako and Kulikoro training camp. Yeah. So I suppose the Kulikoro side, it's it's the training side of it, but we had our lieutenant colonel, and then our commandant was, say, the, the SO of the S7 side of the house. So he looked after all the training. Yeah. Then we had the S4, so it's the guys in the so signals logistics, and logistics. Yeah. And then we had, obviously, ourselves, the trainers as well. So... Um, there was different elements to it, but um, a small little group of us, but we were playing different roles within the, the training area itself. Yeah, exactly, and all, all contributing to making the kind of mission work away. Exactly, The main yeah. point is, is the training, to support the training. Exactly. It's a coming out, out in uh, Kulikuro. The lieutenant colonel, he was the executive officer for the camp, so quite an important role over yeah. there as well. And then as the, the commandant, he was like head of all the training, or like deputy. Yeah, so dep so. deputy chief instructor. Yeah, so yeah. what course are coming up, so... Well, it's very two, two very important roles in the camp itself, like so. Yeah, yeah. So big influence in the camp, like integral roles to the mission. I mean, that's good to hear that, that defense forces personnel are having such a, a a direct influence on how the training is conducted out there, um, and who and what has decided how we're actually how the training as a whole, not just the actual on the ground side of it as well. Um, so you, men you mentioned earlier, uh, Valerie, that like the camp itself reminded you like of a small defense forces training center, a small yeah. DFTC. Um, so can can it kind of go into that a, a, a in a little more detail for us? So okay. I would have understood that going over there, our personnel are primarily kind of running infantry-based courses. But from what I've heard from you, it's it's actually much more varied than that. Yeah, yeah. So like the camp itself, um, it's a small enough camp, like a size of a small village, and um, it was secured by the force protection. So while we were there, the force protection was made up of the Spanish contingent and the Czech Republic contingent. So. They were in charge of the whole security of the compound. Within the compound, then, you'd have the different um, locations where the different courses will go on. So the likes of um, the infantry courses, that this was one of the first courses that we actually instructed on. So the infantry course itself, you could have a company of 100 personnel on it. And then within that company, it's broken down into smaller um, platoons and sections. Um, so that course went on for six weeks. I think so, yeah. We About were, six weeks training. We were, we were shadowing just to get our feet, just to kind of see how the Malians yeah. worked and how the other trainers, because we would have been the freshest ones. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, so just just kind of done. so yeah. with the likes of the infantry course, similar to at home, so like in the morning time, they'd have their parade and then we'd go down to the stores, so they'd draw their weapons. Um, so the weapons that they were using was the AK-47, and prior to deployment, we would have had training on the AK-47, so we were familiar with giving instruction, obviously, uh, to the Malian um, armed forces. So they draw their weapons. Not everybody would get a weapon because of the, the whole logistical side of it. Say 80% of the platoon might have an AK, and somebody else might have a wooden version of it. Just And again, that's just down to their, their own... Um, logistics it side of it shortages yeah and pieces like that but um so from there then we'd go out into the training area so you'd book a training area like you would at home and you would take the platoon out there and you'd spend the day out there training with them on different um tactics and stuff and then you come in for lunchtime so again it's very similar kind of routine as it would be at home um so 
there's obviously the infantry part that we were discussing and the uh, kind of basic kind of tactical stuff. But your other skills that you would have accrued over your military career here in Ireland were also used out there. Like, for example, you were instructing, as you mentioned, on those armour personnel carriers, Father. Yeah, so um, prior to deploying to Hundoff in 2017, we would have done a car commander's course. Mm -hmm. So we would have been working with the cars. Um, so again, just the likes of car dismount drills and your, your technical, technical procedures when you do dismount and, and that kind of thing. So that was one of the courses. And then, I suppose, um, amphibian instructor as well. So we they would have done a so lot of... fighting built areas, the urban, yes, urban warfare. Yeah, yeah. so the urban um, operation so like there was a village there that was used specifically for that it was a village that was you know the story it was built for built for the uh, officers but the there's a Mount Cayla just beside the camp uh, the Malians yeah. believe it's haunted so yeah. the they never occupied the houses so, so that, as I mentioned I was actually out there myself briefly for a, for a media trip and there so the, these were houses that were originally built for Malian officers that would have been I serving think, the camp yeah, yeah, and yeah. what they are now they're basically kind of shells of buildings yeah there's no windows or doors yeah. but they, they use it to move through yeah. rooms and so on yeah, yeah so a mini, value, least, yeah, yeah like a mini Fort Davis or such so yeah. they were able to and that was beside the camp so there was that kind of aspect of it as well and then there was the topography course, so that was like their map reading and navigation, um, which was very interesting because these guys, um, sometimes like we produced all the maps and the map reading equipment and all that kind of stuff for them. So it was learning the basics on how to read a map to do night navigations. So we did night navigation exercises with them out in the training area, which to them, they were like, they were let out in pairs. There was force protection out there um, to make sure that everyone I suppose was safe. Um, and we give them GPSs. So again, this was equipment that EUTM was able to supply to the Malians to teach them how to use this kind of equipment. And also, uh, they were able to use your silver compass. So it was the two aspects. So it was the basic right up to using a GPS. So their skills, like throughout um, their courses, would have developed, and they were very good, like with uh, um, picking things up and you know learning quickly. Like they were very very interested the whole time. So like. Whenever we had a course, it was like they were very enthusiastic and I suppose really happy to be there because mm -hmm. I suppose the more time they spent in the in the Kuligura train area, the less time they were spending up the north, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, they were happy to be there. They wanted to be there and teaching them was it was it was really kind of rewarding because you were able to see the, the end product where they were able to from going, not knowing basically what way to turn them up to being able to navigate at night time. Yeah, so and it, uh, obviously in the same way, at home, we, we did a podcast recently enough with um, Sergeant Rico Lucchese of the 27th Battalion, and he mentioned the satisfaction of seeing that product of, of people picking up training and seeing them develop, and mm. I'm sure you probably got the same satisfaction dealing with the Malian soldiers and the Malian recruits out there as, as they kind of moved along. For your uh, for yourself, Ozzy, you, me you mentioned that you, you went further up, you, you went up towards Sigur. the north. Yeah, so it was just six hours north of uh, Kulakura. Mm -hmm. So we drove up, the, the, there's a kind of a dual carriageway, kind of modern enough road. Um, so it would have been a CMAP, which is a combined military advisory training team. Mm -hmm. So in that you'd have your trainers, you'd have force protection, you'd have the medical aspect and the logistics side of it. So we went up um, a German couple, I don't know the backstory, but they own a hotel on the River Niger in Segu. Uh, force protection went up a week ahead, they took over the hotel and secured it. Uh, then we came up and we worked with the local, uh, the um, we went to the local camp essentially mm -hmm. uh, and did a, a remote kind of training camp there for four weeks uh, with myself, Sergeant Horgan and Sergeant um, Jacob um, and there was 17 other trainers I think so we just went to the camp every day, did kind of a infantry course essentially. Yeah. So you'd be at all times during training, uh, 
you'd be very aware that everything you're teaching them, they're they're going to be using these skills and drills in real life. Uh, when we were in Segu, uh, I think it was the middle the, the week two, uh, a camp uh, uh, as part of this brigade was attacked and one of the guys in the, the platoon we were teaching, his brother was killed. So And, you know, they, they still came to work the next day, the whole yeah. the whole company we were, platoon we were training. But, like, they had, had a real appreciation of, you know, their job was very serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you as a trainer, like... It, you have to yeah you had to be able to teach them exactly what to do and the ips again i was probably touching that later on but the ips would translate what you're the, teaching them across the interpreters yeah the interpreters big yeah. and like you'd have to be very conscious that what you're teaching them is going to be used by them yeah yeah um, which, which brings it home yeah mm-hmm. these this is real real world real life consequences and you you have a responsibility to make sure these people are trained as best as you can absolutely mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then, like, as Lieutenant Doyle was saying there, um, like, initially before we went over, we were told, obviously, the, the Malian Armed Forces, their primary language is French, and then their local language will be... Um, Bambra. Bambra. So, with that, like, um, none of us really knew much French, but we had interpreters, which was great, because the interpreters were excellent at English. Um, but I suppose a lot of what we did was um, visual. So the likes of your your TTPs or your tactics at all that you were doing out in the ground, we'd create like a model so that mm. they could visualize where their section is, where they're going to move to, and how they're going to move through it. Um, and then obviously, if there wasn't, if there was any questions from the class or from the the platoon, it would go through the interpreter. But um, what we did was we picked up a. a, a few words here and there and I think they, they love that when, when you made an effort to speak their language or to say a couple of couple of words in Bambra or in French. It really like, you know, got them kinda I suppose clued in a bit more. Yeah, got kinda, them kind of yeah, yeah, got them interested. More interested, yeah. So it was good. We had the use of the interpreter. So there was never really like a, a language barrier or communication barrier in that sense. Um, and especially with the other the other nations as well. So you had the Spanish and I suppose everybody was from different countries, but everybody spoke English. So that was the, the primary language was English. Into I suppose in terms of other courses we worked on, then um, during a quiet period, I ran a, a train the trainers course speaking or teach English to the other trainers yeah. the, on the mission now. Few people at home probably say I don't speak English, but I'm more than qualified according <laughs> to the competition English class <laughs> over there. Uh, so that was that was an interesting side as well. Yeah. You're actually not only we were trying to improve the Malians, but trying to improve the mission as well and what products we were delivering to them because we did do our own counter AD course. Yeah. Uh, where we built a sand pit and the Moldovans who were the, the specialists at IEDs would kind of upscale us as trainers as yeah. well so that was good it was always so there's always a kind of a uh, just a continuous learning aspect to the, yeah. to the camp yeah. both for the Malians and, and for yourselves and for the other the other contingents too yeah. as well yeah. and one of the other sergeants that was over with us as well Sergeant Rory Jacob he was the subject uh, matter expert with the CIED so he was mm. heavily involved with building the the IED pit and like was I suppose involved with developing that syllabus as well so yeah. it was really good in that he had a good input into I suppose teaching the Malians because it would be something that's very current now yeah. in every mission like not just Mali but across the world is the IEDs of course, yeah, and the, to kind of train them on that and yeah, keep the, everything very current. The counter improvised explosive device aspect of it you would think it's, it was so huge in Afghanistan and it's become a huge part of our own training at home here as well mm. it's also good to hear that it's not just the very basic yeah. stuff that's being taught it's oh yeah it's being yeah. it's ground up and it's also these are things that you need to look out for in 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 the modern world and in the modern um security situation or battlefield 
myself, yourself and Sergeant Horgan, Mick Horgan would have yeah. done the pedagogy course as well, so something like our specialised instructor course here. Yeah. So we ran that for the trainers in the camp as well. And then when I went to school, went to the NCO training school. So uh, what I'm doing at home, I suppose, yeah. in Mali, so that was kind of interesting and uh, seeing their senior NCOs from a different brigade as well. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. yeah, and kind of yeah, getting that sort of level of, of contact with them. And uh, later on in the podcast, I want to go into sort of the like the contact that you had with, say, the Malian officers and Malian NCOs and, and, how, and how they're kind of upskilling. Um, you also instructed police as well in um, Sagu. In Bamako. Oh, in Bamako. Yeah, so yeah. myself and Sergeant McHorgan went into to Bamako for a week um, and we, we trained the Malians. Myself and Mick ran a, uh, we ran a range day for them, sort of a, a combat shooting. Sergeant Horgan was very experienced with that. Yeah. Uh, but we also did fibula drills for, uh, again, fighting in built-up areas, big pardon. Um, drills for two days with them, um, but yeah, it was interesting just to work with a, yeah, I suppose a, a, other than the the fama, uh, or the the, uh, the the military over there working with the they were a, a special branch of the police that would work with their um, government. Yeah, the paramilitary like, style branch. Yeah, kind of yeah. So that was it. Was just something that got we got out of the camp for a weekend just working with different types of troops as well, that was interesting. To go into the people that you were actually training, the Malian soldiers themselves that were coming in, like, obviously there's a big culture, there's a cultural difference, which we'll talk about, um, but who were they in, like, were they from the southern part of Mali, or were they from all over, or? Uh, generally the troops would come from all over Mali, um, so they'd be down there Monday to Friday, uh, and then the weekends to be, to go, go home themselves. Yeah. Uh, demographic, mostly young, uh, there yeah. was there was some older ones, but this was the average age. Well, you were saying there was one one or two didn't know their age, just yeah. kind of whatever. Uh, their background, they didn't background. have any. Because you yeah, you would say they'd come from orphanages or from. Yeah, so there was one guy in particular I remember. Um, he was like the, the oldest guy in the company, and um, they used to tell us that he didn't know what age he was because he didn't have a birth cert or he was an orphan. Um, so they guessed that he was about 50, maybe mid-50s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like the, the majority of them probably ranged between 20 and maybe 30. Yeah. So like in between, yeah, yeah. between 20 and 30. Um, so there was a good range of them, um, of, I suppose, different backgrounds and that. And, and the majority of them, as Lieutenant Doyle was saying, yeah, they would travel from all over and they would come down for the week yeah. and they'd stay in the camp outside of our camp, which was specific specific for them they had their own accommodation there and they had their own cooking facilities and they had their own security aspect out there as well so and then it was a normal course Monday to Friday and then they'd go home the weekends so I suppose similar to courses ourselves that we do run at home as well in terms of our interaction then as we mentioned with the IPs yeah that would work uh, with them like obviously they're they're cult- culturally different than us yeah very very friendly love the Europeans um, a big thing I suppose we were told before we got over, like when when they want to talk to you, they'd hold your hand. You know, and you know it's not something you're used to hear, but like you know, just come up, they'll hold your hand. Or, yeah. Um. That's that's how that's how they engage you. That's how they'll hold your hand. They'll look you straight in the eye and have a conversation with you. So the IPs are the interpreters that do the same as well. Yeah. Um. So I suppose the first day we were out there, that probably took a by surprise slightly, even though surprise, <laughs> but, uh, you just get used to that after a while. Um. But like very fr- like whatever you asked them to do they were always happy to do it like they, they, yeah. they saw the benefit of you being there to them they were a very positive attitude yeah, yeah um, they, they obviously had different levels of education and we, we spoke about mm. backgrounds but like how was 
coming in? Like, how, how have they ended up in the Malian Armed, Armed Forces? Or is it just, is, is it seen as prestigious over there or is it seen? Uh, yeah, uh, I suppose to have a job in Mali is, is a positive. Uh, yeah. So the army will be seen as a, while it be a dangerous job, it is a secure job. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're given accommodation and they're, they're fed uh, from what we saw in the, the camp we were in. Uh, whenever they go north, I suppose it might be a bit different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, to, to be in the, the military was they were respected enough. Yeah, yeah, of course. I suppose, uh, sorry, like a lot of them would have probably family members um, that would have been in the army. So they were following in either their father's or uncle's footsteps. And um, I suppose what we did see on the other side of it, um, the cadet school side of it, was uh, a lot of them would have been, um, had their fathers served in the Malian Armed Forces as well. And um, a couple of times now, I would have done um, physical training with the cadet school on a Wednesday morning at six o'clock. And there was one morning where there was seven um, pilots who had uh, had to go through their cadetship, same as everybody else. But they had been to university in France and different countries across the EU. And these guys were, uh, their education was excellent. They had third level education. They had, um, they were fluent in English, so there was no problems there. Um, so it just goes to show there was completely different levels of education from, say, the infantry courses right up to, say, the officer training side of it where the, they had already experienced um, different training outside of Mali, which was, I suppose, good experience for them. Yeah, yeah. And the Mali Armed Forces, is that open to everybody in, in the country, as in within certain ages? It's open to, like, both genders? It's open to... Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. So I suppose, like most European armies in that, the, the ratio would be... I suppose, like, obviously there's a lot more male um, in it, but there was also females that would have taken part in a lot of the courses as well. And also there would have been some female instructors in the cadet school mm-hmm. um, in there as well. So there was, I suppose, like, I don't know, there could have been maybe 5-10% females okay. in the, in the course. It higher in the cadet school It as well. did, yeah, 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 there's a lot more in the cadet school. Yeah. But yeah, there was still a, a percentage of females there, yeah. And as regards just generally, like, these, these kind of Malian soldiers that were coming in, how did, how did they take to the country? You said their attitude was always very positive, but, and, and the, the language barrier wasn't, wasn't too big, big a thing, but like, how did they take to the kind of training that you were offering? Uh, I suppose, because the mission was going since 2013, whoever had been back for a course knew how it operated, so generally you start training at 8 in the morning till 12. Um, I suppose they, as Val said earlier, they kind of learn more by visualising things or you having a model and drawn out where they are and where their comrades are, what wider moving in certain ways. Uh, so they'd learn way better by doing things. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to you writing a lot of things on the on the whiteboard you could bring out like um, I suppose at varying education levels like that, you know mm. I mean if if you're not used to that kind of thing it wouldn't hold your it wouldn't hold your attention. No, mm. so as, what we found was um you'd get a good attention span for about ten minutes. So they'd be paying attention and then you could see them starting to drift. So that's when we knew change things up or add in the element of competition or something like that, especially if it was weapons handling. Um, we used to do a lot of weapons handling with the, the basic kind of infantry course and we'd have like, you know, the weapon stripping and assembling the weapons, um, add in a bit of competition, blindfold them or race them and that kind of thing. And that, like they're, they're learning at the same time, but they're competing against each other. And for some reason they just loved competition yeah. and they always want to know who won. And um, if I won, what do I get? Do I get like 10 minutes off here or do I get something? And we used to give them like small little prizes and stuff to yeah. kind of, you know, add in that little bit of excitement for them yeah. as well. Like, so no more than at home. I mean, everybody loves a bit of competition and it does. It, yeah, they it responded very well. Yeah. They did. Yeah. 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 So, 
Uh, you'd still you'd get a bit of crack out of them as well yeah. and it made it more enjoyable for us and then you could see at the end of the day how much they've performed. Yeah. But um, I suppose the best time to train them was in the morning time when they were more alert. Obviously, the, the weather over there, exactly, yeah. it was just so hot. Like I think the hottest time we clocked was about 50 degrees out in the training area. Mm. And like we'd have body armor, salt vest, you're carrying your long barrel, you have your pistol, you have all the gear with you. So it is, it can be quite, I suppose, physically demanding as well. Like so, but for them, when we used to see, when we give them a break out in the training area, they go straight for underneath the vehicles where there was a bit of shelter. And yeah. you'd see, like you're thinking, Jesus, if, if they're finding this, this hot, like we're standing here, like used to Irish weather. Out in the middle of Mali, so um, yeah. You're kind of maybe we should take a leaf out of the out of the locals' book, as in they obviously <laughs> yeah, know yeah. something. Yeah. Exactly, maybe yeah. we don't get a bit of shelter. Yeah. yeah. So like towards the evening time, like they were, they were getting tired, and like obviously their nutrition wouldn't have been as good as ours, so they probably would have got a bowl of rice or something at lunchtime. So that wouldn't really sustain them as much as us. So we kind of had to, you know, we were aware of that, and we, you know, you couldn't overtrain them either because you know it wasn't fair on them so we trained them as best we could for as long as we could and then give them breaks mm -hmm. um so that was how we got the best out of them yeah and i, w I was going to ask uh, just regarding you mentioned earlier uh valerie about like someone would have uh, ak-47 someone would have a would have like a, a wooden color so there were equipment shortages to mm -hmm. deal with as well yeah so again their logistics um like because there was so many of them um so the likes of uh, we'd be used to getting our supply of pyrotechnics so the, the likes of our blank rounds our smoke grenades and all that kind of stuff for making exercises at home that little bit more realistic so mm -hmm. while we were out in the training area to make it more realistic they didn't have access to blank ammunition or smoke grenades and stuff like that it was very very limited um, to certain exercises so instead of firing blank ammunition they would mimic it they would they'd be shouting at each other and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but like, rapid fire and you know, rapid fire, fire and they'd be like making noises of weapons and that kind of stuff. And I suppose, look, it was, it was, um, it's just to try and get the atmosphere going and make exactly, it a bit more yeah, authentic for yeah. it. Yeah. So then when we did have pyros, there was a couple of times where we did have smoke grenades and stuff. And when we throw smoke out, like just that added a little bit of realism to them as well. So it kind of made them perform a bit more. So. The German trainers are very good for getting smoke grenades and stuff like that, the, the Germans brought a lot to the mission. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they would... Um, Fantastic. Uh, yeah. As regards their conditions as well, so you, you mentioned that at lunch they might only get a bowl of rice. Like, their, their barracks and where they were actually staying, the conditions mm. were extremely basic. Yeah, so they had a cookhouse. So when I say cookhouse, it was like, it was like a, a shed that you'd have cattle in, um, but it had like two fires going with two massive pots over it, mm -hmm. and they'd have the local women cooking... Um, boiling rice and, and stuff like that for them so they would literally get their break go over to the shed get their their food so hygiene sanitation all that was kind of out the window so it's very very you know uh i suppose limited to what they had unfortunately mm. but they were still able to you know continue with their training and, and that kind of thing but um yeah but like if we had any stuff at all we'd give it to them you know we'd bring out bottles, of water, bottles of water and stuff like that to yeah as well yeah. And, and we talked as well about their sleeping conditions. So, so that's their their cookhouse conditions you mentioned, and and where they're getting their food. But their sleeping conditions are also very basic. Yeah. So across from their cookhouse, they had a smaller camp, just outside our camp, and there was accommodation for maybe up to three hundred troops, and there were small uh, little buildings with a tin roof on it. So you can imagine how the heat during the day mm -hmm. um, would have been like probably going into a sauna. So when they got their siesta at lunchtime, they would pull their beds outside under a tree. And they would sleep there, and probably during the the night as well, because it just got so hot. 
Um, and they're going to be up to, I suppose, 20 in one of these small little buildings. So if you can imagine um, a billet in the Glen of Amal would hold probably up to, well, the biggest one would hold probably 16. So the, their buildings were a lot smaller than that with more people in it. So it was a lot more condensed. Yeah. Um, uh, they had their own security there as well. Now, it wouldn't have been, I suppose, as secure as our camp, but they did have an element of security there. So it was very kind of... Um, if there was a lot, if there was a lot of training going on at the same time, it would be very, um, I suppose, be busy enough in their little accommodation thing. Yeah, so. be quite quite cramped. Yeah, very um, cramped. And as regards, obviously, training in Ireland and, and recruit courses and things, there's a military socialisation aspect where the NCOs and officer staff will go down, the instructor staff will go down, and they'll, you know, check on. You have a room inspection on because that wasn't part of the type of training you were doing no, with them. No, no, it was just in the field instruction is what your job yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, just the, the basic infantry skills. So nothing down the like we didn't. So they had their own parades and inspections. So they'd have a platoon commander, platoon sergeant, and they'd inspect them like in the morning to make sure that they, they had their boots on and and they had all their equipment that they were given as well. But actually, we were just talking about equipment. I remember one day there was a resupply of equipment when they got the caspiers out. They got helmets body armour and they got new boots mm-hmm. so that was all supplied by the German army so you know like they were they were getting good good equipment in that you know there that was theirs to keep um, and then they were made sure that the, but then there was other aspects of it that they didn't and I suppose uh, when there's a rotation of troops in and out the, the troops that have received equipment in that occasion go and then the next troops come in and they may be they mightn't get any exactly so yeah. there's not there's not a kind of an even equipment of, mm. equipping of the Mali yeah. Armed Forces in the way that when there's a new issue brought into say our own defence forces or, or into everybody a, a, gets it. Everybody does yeah. get it. It's yeah. sort of more piecemeal, more ad, ad hoc kind of. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Unfortunately, that was the way it was. But um, in fairness, like there was a there was a visit actually while we were there from the J Four in uh, the, the German Army, and they were over, I suppose, looking at the likes of the equipment that they would have given, uh, particularly the Caspiers and um, the the different kind of equipment that they would have given. Which was good, I suppose, for the, the Malian army. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. To just yeah to, to mm. do a little inspection and see how it's going. Yeah. Um. We we mentioned, say, those guys that received new equipment and then they rotate out. So after troops had received their course of training in Kulukuru training camp, what happened? What happened then? What happens then typically to them? Uh, well, it depends where they came from originally, but uh, I suppose they'll get deployed back to their local brigade, whether that be north, west, east, south, or whatever. Uh, I suppose the majority of the ones we trained seem to go north, yeah. uh, back towards uh, Segu or t- uh, Timbuktu, kind of that direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so to be, uh, depending on when the course ended, or the course might end early, uh, they'd find out they're, they're deploying north or wherever uh, on the Monday. Um, so to, we'd have a closing ceremony. The, the students got a certificate, which they, they like to get, because, you know, you, might, you obviously can't show your skills kit, but you had a, had a printout from the European uh, mission. Yeah, uh, they love to hang it up in their wall at home. So that was a big thing that they always got this cert at the end with their name on it. Yeah, uh, and that was the the physical thing they got at the end of the course, and off they went uh, back under the controller, company commander, or whatever again. And could very quickly end up on operations, basically in combat. Yeah, in North Mountain. Usually a very short turnaround. That. Yeah. From well, from what we understood it to be anyway. Yeah. And did you ever pick up from talking to them what their feelings on that were, were or how they how they viewed it? Um. I know the the one course the one that stands out for me was the the Caspier one yeah. where it ended early, uh, and I think they were told on Thursday or Friday that they were yeah they were deploying in the Monday rather than you staying the next two weeks yeah uh, see the morale was was low yeah on Friday it was 
And correct me if I'm wrong on any of this now, yeah. but I remember they were told by their company commander, uh, the Malian company commander had told them, and they weren't happy, obviously, at first. Uh, but whatever, whatever, obviously he was speaking Bamber to him, so we didn't Oh, yeah, didn't yeah, I remember that, that, yeah. But by the end of whatever he said, they were actually all cheering and delighted to go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I suppose, look, that's what they, they joined the, the military to do. Yeah. Uh, they want their country as stable as, as we wanted their country to be back stable and as they know, pre-2012. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, there's an element of, I mean, they are protecting their own yeah. nation. Their families, their friends such. and so on, yeah. And, and over the course of the time that she spent the mission, that she spent, the six months that she spent in the mission, how many uh, Malian soldiers do you reckon passed through your, your actual E train, do you reckon? Uh, I'd say about 350. Yeah, about that. So we would have instructed probably on uh, between four or five courses each. So um, between the infantry courses, the map reading courses, the instructor courses, um, then you did the, the CMAT as well. Mm. So, yeah, like for each infantry course, there would have been a company on it. So you're talking about 100 personnel. So if we did four of them, yeah, you're talking about, I suppose, around the three 400 mark we would have seen pass through while we were there. Yeah. And then I suppose they... There would have been sharpshooter courses, TACP courses that we didn't work on as well. Yeah. So there would have been far more than that going through the camp. So there's a very high turnover of, of manning troops going through there. So, so most... Would be fair to say that most of the Malian Armed Forces have at some point received some training from, from Western military. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely they yeah, would have. Yeah. And some had been back for a second course now, but I think that was rare enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because okay. actually it was funny. Some of them actually would ask us, do you know such and such? That's right, yeah. Because like they'd be like, so the guys that were there before us on the, the say for the first, second, third mission, uh, we were the 13th uh, Irish contingent over there. So obviously there was a lot of Irish before us. And some of them would say, do you know uh, CS such and such? And we'd say, yeah, we know. And we'd go, oh, yeah, I met him in 2014. Yeah. The, the IPs particularly, the IPs would have a great relationship. Oh, okay, with the yeah. So they'd obviously be staying there. They wouldn't be rotating out. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But then some of, the, some of the actual soldiers had been back for a second time to do a, a different course or something like that. And uh, they would have remembered some of the characters that would have come from the Irish contingents. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's okay. funny to see that. But... Um, yeah. <laughs> like I said. Uh, so yeah, well, I, suppose, I suppose yeah. There's a that kind of memory on it. Um, just uh, so there's there's a big turnover. Lots of lots of Malian troops have received instruction from not only Irish but from other European armies. Had you much dealings with the Malian officers, the Malian non-commissioned officers, the, the leadership element of the Malian, the Malian army? We would on some course the Caspier certainly because that was a that was a company of the course. Yeah. So where we were doing the dismounted stuff, the senior NCOs or officers would have been. Uh, Dominique was the was the German captain, yeah. and he would have been doing kind of more leadership stuff. Or it was like a a, a senior command and staff course. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's no Dominique wasn't part of the the ATF, um, which they do advisory um, stuff. So that was like the senior command and staff course. Okay. But they would have came out uh, later on the course like that on the bigger courses, but as, as like the ATF worked in Bamako. Uh, and they would have worked in the, the HQ element of uh, Fama. Yeah. They wouldn't have been in Kulakoro, but they would have came on CMATs uh, because obviously there would have been officers and so on in the brigade you're going to on those CMATs. But like on, on some of the courses, like the, the top uh, or the map reading course, yeah. you would have had some NCOs on that course. Yeah, so the, the map reading course, it was like an instructor course for them. So it yeah. was all um, NCOs, senior NCOs and some of some officers as well. Um, but then the, 
So there was the basic map reading course and then you had the instructor course as well. So the likes of that is a little bit more advanced for them. Um, and they would have done the basic um, on, they would have went from the basic then on to the instructor, some okay. of them. Yeah. The specialised instructor course then, that would have been senior NCOs on that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but certainly this amount of stuff, that was that was generally non-officers or non-senior yeah. So the specialised instructor course would have been a mirror of the, of the course that we do here to prepare exactly, sir, officers yeah. and NCOs for yeah. instructing. So a lot of the syllabus we actually taught over there would have been very, very similar to what we do here. We would have um, implemented that over there. So like our common common Tynan, he was um, in the training cell, so he would have offered, say, courses to the Malian um, commander and he would have agreed to it. So he would have said, OK, we can run a specialised instructor's course. And uh, we did. We ran that and it was, they loved it and they thought it was really good. So we kind of, we condensed it down to what time period that they would say, okay, we have two weeks to do this. Can you run this course? And then we would, I suppose, extract from our own syllabus and then create a new syllabus for EUTM. And then that was there then for future. So anybody that was coming over, um, say, from different EU countries, they could look at the syllabus and then deliver the instructions yeah. like we would. Do it, like the lesson plans and everything would be available to all the trainers. Okay. So just kind of... At the end, from, from your perspective, like, I mean, do you feel that what you were doing out there was making a real difference to those, to those Malian uh, soldiers that you met and that you trained? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I suppose, again, probably you're going to sick of hearing about this Caspier course, but at the end of every course, you'd run a big exercise. <laughs> and generally, like, the commandant would come out or the yeah. chief instructor would come out and he'd watch them and you'd see the students executing skills and so on. Like, yeah. So that was really good. It was you're confirming that the students... Uh, like be driving three Caspers down the road, we simulate contact left, yeah. the, the smoke grenade out there. They'd uh, they have turrets, so the lads up in the turret would get up and it, it was in the train area close camp, so it'd be, be blank ammunition. Uh, they'd react, the lads would dismount, form baseline, uh, move onto the target or move away, uh, extract out of the area. I gave them casualties, they deal with the casualties, uh, stuff like that. So like, when you did exercise of that, you're like, okay, these lads are, they know, the, they're not the soldier that turned up here six or eight weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're more confident in their abilities. And I suppose it was, it was satisfying enough taking, a, taking the minute start and seeing that product at the end as well. And then no more mm. the, with the map reading as well. I'm sure the yeah. night navigation and stuff. And because I, I remember looking at the syllabus and the different lesson plans and thinking, my God, how are these guys going to like do a night nav? They can't, they can't like, you know, they don't know the right way around the map. But after the four weeks, like four weeks of basic training, and just bring them along and showing them how you actually do it from A to B to sending them out into a training area like 10 kilometers out and back in the middle of the night. Um, it was really good. Like, yeah. we all came back, thank God, and nobody got lost. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we weren't in trouble. But no, there was really good to actually see that. Um, and then it's almost like it, it kind of it shows that they're really good at picking things up. They want to learn, they want to get these new skills and it's an opportunity for them to sort of develop themselves as yeah. well um, and then to be able to relay it on to their the guys coming up after them as well like so it was yeah it was very very good for us to kind of see that yeah like and again going back to what I said earlier like you really do get appreciation that they probably will use these skills that you teach them as well like yeah, yeah. I remember the, the first day we were on the court we were doing counter AD stuff and I just posed the question to the whole platoon uh, time how many of them had been in a convoy that had hit an ID or were, you know, had seen one and two thirds of them yeah. had, had some... It's quite high. They, they knew. That really brings it home to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, they, they, they knew, they were well aware of what you were trying to teach them or 
why you were trying to teach the thing. You didn't mm. really have to emphasize. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to give them stats. These guys had seen it. Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. So there were like, uh, even as a left hand roller was saying, when they were doing fives and 25s, like you want to see how cautious they were, like moving around the vehicle and actually doing it. Because they know that if they don't cover certain parts of ground, that ground's not covered. It could be their, their buddy there behind them that's getting the, you know, yeah, the news. Yeah, that's mm. getting a killer, killer yeah. severely injured by, by yeah. force. So it was very, I suppose, what they were doing was they were being focused that I need to learn this because it's going to save my life. Yeah. Well, at the end of that, thanks very much, Valerie and Ozzy, for coming on to the show and sharing your experiences. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Pleasure. Very enjoyable. I, I think like you provide us with a really good insight into what um, Irish troops are doing in EUT and Mali and the importance of the mission um, to stabilising the region. So, so it's, great, it's great to hear. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media platforms and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. Today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison and Sergeant Paul Keeley of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available for download on Spotify, iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode. For everyone out there, thanks for listening and stay safe.